Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike, and this is where Brian would usually introduce himself and say that in this show we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. But Brian is out today, alas. In his place, a lifelong friend of mine, he cried at the end of Avengers Endgame. That's right. He has no patience for Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. It's Joey, don't call me Chisler, Santos. Hey, glad Joey. To, glad to be here. <laughs> That's a good line. Good line. Uh, have you seen today's film? I have. It would be kind of awkward if I didn't <laughs> went through all the routine <laughs> I mean, of being have, on have here. Have you seen it before this viewing? Is this your first viewing of, of uh, Gangs of New York? It actually was, yeah. Uh, and I've seen a lot of Martin Scorsese movies. This one just kind of fell through for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to cover. He's, he's got a lot of them. Do you want to do the honors and set up the trailer for us? The moment has come. Yeah, let's do it. In 2002, the nominees for Best Picture were The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Hours, Chicago, and The Pianist. And today's movie, Gangs of New York, directed by Martin Scorsese. Let's, let's hear, hear the, the trailer. trailer. Nailed it. Winner to 2002 Golden Globe Awards and nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. On my challenge, we have met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives or the foreign hordes? here in paradise everybody owes everybody pays what do you think you're doing i'm dancing so why aren't you dancing with him i'm not in love with him there's more of us coming off these ships every day Fifteen thousand irish a week get all of us together we ain't got a gang we got an army challenge challenge accepted i took the father now i'll take the son i give you my word this will all be finished tomorrow. No, it won't. Are you feeling energized? There's a lot of drum beating going on there. There's a lot of a lot of momentum. How are you feeling? 
Very intense. Did that pump you up? Yeah, it pumped me up. I looked for a uh, shorter trailer, but it wasn't happening. That was the shortest I can find. So in addition to Best Picture, yeah. Gangs of New York cleaned up at the Oscars, kind of. It earned a total of 10 Oscar nods, including Best Director, Scorsese, Best Actor, Day-Lewis, Best Writing, and Best Cinematography, among others. Mm-hmm. But it won zero, and it was the only Best Picture nominee from that year to win zero awards. But here's the kicker, and I think this kind of puts a silver lining on everything. Okay. It did win Best Director and Best Original Song at the Golden Globes. Yeah, I mean, Golden Globes are always <laughs> the secondary award that you get. You walk away. Uh, and you feel good. I mean, you feel like, hey, I got something. I didn't walk away from our Oscar season empty-handed. I mean, the thing that sucks is generally when you go to the Oscars and you get nominated for everything and you you don't end up winning anything, it feels almost like taking a test, writing your name on it, and then leaving the room. <laughs> Really got nothing out of it. I guess so. Coming up in the show, our Farley Awards for the most awesome moment of the movie. Golden Takes will ask each other one question meant to add a notch of truth to the battle club of ignorance. We'll imagine what might have been, talk trivia, and the big one. We'll decide whether to keep it or kick it from our top fives of 2002. But first, our Farley Awards for the most awesome moment of the movie. Joey, kick us off. Uh, So... Two scenes stand out to me. Um, I'm going to go with the bed scene where Amsterdam wakes up and Bill's draped in mm. the flag of the natives. Yeah. Uh, it's it's such an intense scene. Leo's, you know, kind of put it into a situation where, you know, uh, Jenny's laying in the bed awake, but you don't know that as the audience member. Yeah. And he kind of goes on. And it's the first time in the movie for me where you feel you understand Bill a little bit more because he's actually describing what motivates him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about his respect and admiration for Priest. You think back to the beginning, why didn't he kill Amsterdam? Because anytime, at least tribally, if you kill all of the adults and you leave the kids, you assume at some point the kid's going to come back for you. Yeah. The kid's not going to be like, man, that, you know, I'm just going to go on college. I'm just going to do my thing <laughs> from here. No, they're going to have revenge on their mind. And I felt like he was finally explaining that. It also made sense, you know, talking about his eye. He's like, Priest took my eye. Yeah. Um, so it really explained a lot. It made it made you as an audience member look at Bill. And I'm not saying you necessarily had to like him, but you could kind of understand where he was coming from. He's fighting for so much that he feels is true. Yes. Even though it's incredibly racist and he, he's determined, to, you know, he doesn't want society to move forward, but he thinks it's falling apart. Yeah. So there's the dichotomy of that, like what's going on in his head. Um, yeah. I mean, you can see that he lives by a code mm-hmm. and you could see that. In a way, even the bad guys, they don't they don't think that they're the bad guys. No. They have a system like through which they're making their decisions and they're and they're living. And yeah. from the outside, you know, they look terrible. But I think Leo has a line, says something like, um, you know, the funny thing about when a dragon takes you under under his wing, it's warmer than you think. And I mean, that's kind of it, right? Like the bad guy's a bad guy if he's not on your side. Honestly, and, and the movie didn't really make it seem like anyone had anything to do. They were they were always ready for a fight at, at the drop of a hat. It's like dead rabbits are back. It's like the bullet boys. It's yeah. like the Marcy boys. Yeah, the Marcy mazes. We're, we're all going to fight. And everyone's like, OK, yeah, I wasn't doing anything else. I was just kind of wandering around the streets. Yeah, I don't know if they did work. I, I Now I'm kind of wishing, though, that I got a full list of all of these gangs names. So I could have listed. I could have read them out because there are so many that are that are cited in this movie and they've got the most ridiculous names in I, the world. I think that's the trivia is you listing a name. Is it in the movie or is it not? in the Oh, movie? that's a good idea. I should have done that. Oh, because when, when you think about it, you only know really two gangs. There's only two gangs that you really feel like you. Yeah, those are the big ones. And the rest are kind of just mentioned from time yeah. to time. Yeah. When they when they go to Amsterdam being an adult and they're just listing off all these gangs, it's like <laughs> just everyone picked a name and they're like, yeah, that's what we are. Yep. Yep. 
Um, and if I could, one other scene that really stood is obviously the fight at the end. Mm, um, mm-hmm. You know, th- the movie to me felt like mini movies because it was like, you know, the beginning with Liam Neeson, uh, Priest, is like this own little mini movie. And, uh, you know, Scorsese doesn't go back to that editing style, the quick cuts during the fight and everything like that. And then all of a sudden he's an adult. It's a slower pace with him building with uh, Bill, Bill the Butcher. And then all of a sudden he's like New Amsterdam. <laughs> And yeah. he's doing his thing and he's bringing back the dead rabbits. And then all of a sudden it's the fight at the end. And it's like the union's like, all right, we're done with this. We're yeah. just going to take everything out. Uh, but that last scene, you know, the fight with, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is so good that even when he's not talking, there's so much on his face. Mm-hmm. Like when he's dying, you can still see he's completely in the scene. Even if the camera wasn't on him, you know, he was he was dying. Like he's like, this is it for me. Yeah. I'll die a true American. This is how I die. <laughs> I think that's a really good way to put it, though, that it, that it feels like mini movies. And maybe we'll talk later about mm-hmm. like if if they gel together, like we would hope that yeah. they might, um, because it definitely is split into into chunks. And I don't know. We'll get into yeah. it, I think. But my best moment, I'm going to start right at the very beginning. It's the build up to that opening battle scene. Yeah. So we start with Liam Neeson. He's kind of walking through his lair for his gang, the Dead Rabbits, and he's got a priest collar on. In one hand, he's holding a cross. In the other hand, he's holding his son's hand, and his son's probably like eight years old or so. And I feel like it's such a great image because we kind of see him as like a religious figure and very paternal. But we know that he's marching into battle, like in the streets, unlawful battle, you know? So I, yeah. think, I think it's this good contrast between like, we know right away that he's a good guy, but what he's doing seems in contrast to how we would view that figure. Um, so I think it's complicating right from the very start. And during that walk, we're meeting all of these characters as they're preparing to fight. And, and that includes Brendan Gleeson, who's one of my favorite characters. He's the guy with the with the notched wooden battle club. Yeah. So he plays this mercenary and he kicks open the door at the end of this march. And I love this moment because right when he kicks the door open, like the camera rushes out of the door into the five points where we'll end up spending the rest of this movie and it's like snow covered. It feels cold, barren. It feels like they're the only life there. They're coming out of the door to kind of introduce life to that area again. Yeah. And and after Scorsese kind of trails Leeson, Neeson through this kind of underground, mm-hmm. you know, where the headquarters of his gang is, like it keeps that that momentum going and then rushes out into the into this courtyard area. And it's a camera move that I feel like he's done before. I was thinking about it. I think it's the last temptation of Christ. At one point, Jesus is kind of talking and, and says something about about being cast off a, a mountain or a cliff. And like the camera follows his arm motion and Scorsese like throws the camera over this cliff. So the camera is almost following the motion of the character's arm rather than following the character himself. Yeah. And he kind of does the same thing here. And I think it just builds off of that whole kinetic thing. But the sequence is especially cool because we get to see how much of this set they built. And I did some reading on it. It was over a mile long, five blocks. They built 30 buildings, two full-size sailing ships, wow. a casino, a saloon, and a ton of other stuff. And we don't see all that here, but I think that we do get a sense of the scale. Yeah. And then Daniel Day-Lewis, old DDL, yeah. he comes out wearing his top hat and he's got, you know, the, the blue sort of marker to show, you know, who they are. I am here. That's when we meet Bill the Butcher. Yeah. At my challenge. <laughs> it's like, we know immediately that this character is going to be iconic. It's yeah. just, he's got such presence. Once the fighting starts, though, I think the scene gets worse. That, and that was my point too. It just, it feels, 
you build this atmosphere and you're cutting away from it so often when there was so much you could have took into it. Yeah. And the isolated times that he does sit on it, it almost makes the actors seem naked to to a certain degree. Because when Liam Neeson's dying, it feels like he's rigid. Like it doesn't feel like he's completely in it. Like he doesn't know where the camera is. Hmm. So sometimes some of the deaths just kind of fall flat for me, like the impactfulness of it. Hmm. So if you were going to, you know, him dying, it's like then pan on him close up his face, like, you know, the wound and stay on that. And then he falls. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you wanted more action, I guess, in, yeah. in the editing when he was dying, because the actual action scene when these gangs are fighting is like nothing but this hyperactive like mtv style thousand cuts kind of thing yeah. which i don't really like but i think it's kind of interesting because i think that it sort of shows scorsese has always been able to sort of change with the times i think that's why he's still good because he tries stuff like this yeah. you know he would never would have done a, a scene like that in that way and in, in you know the 70s and Goodfellas is kind of known for, it's got this like crazy long tracking shot, like one unbroken take. And then here it's like, it couldn't be more opposite from an unbroken take. It's yeah. like a thousand breaks <laughs> before the scene ends. But I don't know, the sequence isn't perfect, but I think it makes it clear from, you know, establishing the momentum to like how many extras are in it to seeing lots of extras, a ton of extras and just seeing how grand the production value is. Yeah. Um, it makes it clear that we're watching an epic and I think it works. I think it works for that, for that. I think the thing is, is uh, the movie starts and it's like the worst Gillette commercial ever. <laughs> yeah. Cause he, he cuts himself yeah. right away on his cheek, right? The yeah. best a man can get. And then he just goes off in the fight. And you never clean the blade. <laughs> I'm going to keep trying to do these bad accents, but Hey, bad accents are a part of this movie, right? We can't. Everyone signed up for it except Daniel Day-Lewis. I guess so. Golden takes, Joey. What's yours? My golden take, and I thought about this for a while, and there was a bunch of different things. I I don't think this movie is great, but more so than that, I don't think this is a top 10 Scorsese movie. Okay. Might not even be a 15, but again, I'd have to look at that. I was trying to list a few off and kind of weigh it, because there is so much to this movie that is good. You know, cinematically, like, you look at some of the camera shots, it's beautiful, you know. Daniel Day-Lewis just adds so much to this. You remove him from this movie. No one talks about this movie. Like, Yeah, it'd he, be a very, very different movie. Yeah, he, he created an iconic character that will last forever. And in that, you have to give a movie credit for that because yeah. Scorsese creating that character and the way that he's on screen and the way he's interacting when he's cutting it, everything is so precise. <laughs> like it's just, yep. you can't take your eyes off of him. Um, the... The reason I say that is I feel like a lot of the secondary characters just kind of fall away. You know, you have Bill C. Riley as Happy Jack, who goes from smiling at a young Amsterdam to like this corrupt cop to dead. <laughs> and then he's off screen. You have a young Stephen Graham who later appears in The Irishman. Mm. And he's he's like this secondary character that's just hanging out with Amsterdam. Um, and then, you know, his call off is jumping at the Union soldiers and just getting terminated. Yeah, these are all like the former dead rabbits correct team, yeah right they were like the liam neeson's people and then when daniel day lewis took over when bill the butcher kind of you know he now he holds sway over the five points like it. he said now all these characters had to kind of decide where do i go and then they kind of became cronies and, in the meantime and i love that i love that they all went independent and did this but it felt like it was building for them coming back together because it's the movie starts so much with like everyone looking at the little kid and you feel like, oh, that's a relationship that's going to come back later. Like, Bill, you know, like happy Jack is obviously going to be like, you know what, I need to I need to go back, help this kid. Nope. 
That's yeah. not going to happen. And the only character that I saw really return and get the fight is Hellcat Maggie. Oh, God, Hellcat Maggie. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's such a weird character because you see everyone in the beginning and she's like getting her Catwoman ensemble yeah, in the beginning. she filed her teeth yeah. into like these sharp fangs almost. There's so much there. And then you don't see her. And then she's putting ears in a jar to drink like sewage beer yeah and then she appears at the end she's like oh time to fight again and <laughs> she's the beer. she's the only one who came back and she's like oh fight and it's like that was the one character i would have been okay if she didn't come back like she yeah. went off and did something else in that initial scene the battle scene that i was talking about and he does a couple of cuts that really highlight her too like yeah, this is time. hellcat maggie and i thought this character is ridiculous i think they went too far with her she filed her teeth down and then i did reading and she's based off of a real person back she, she wow. died when she was like 26 in one of these fights but yeah she she filed all of her teeth down so that she could bite people in battle as a way to kill them i guess i, I don't know i guess that was her weapon of choice seems like an odd one though and, and and those are the things that hold me back in the movie is i feel like if it's possible an almost three hour movie feels rushed it feels like they really focused on cameron diaz's uh jenny they focused on so much more than they should have focused on these other characters and coming together like that would have been a powerful story to get to the fight i get it because ultimately the fight didn't really happen the way you thought it was these two gangs are going to fight because the union came yeah yeah which is cool like i like the idea of this is they've been running reckless forever and then lincoln put the squash on it and he's like we're done with this yeah but it still felt like those people should have been by his side i just felt like that was a connection with his dad outside of just bill the butcher speaking priest into existence mm -hmm. yeah well i mean i think we're gonna fall into pretty similar lines here because i kind of felt the same way about it feeling weirdly rushed for a three-hour movie so i'll get into my golden take and i think we're, we're going to talk more about this so at one point Bill the Butcher says that it's the, quote, spectacle of fearsome acts that, quote, preserves the order of things. And I think that you can say the same thing about this movie, that, like, the spectacle of the violence, of Daniel Day-Lewis's yeah. performance, of Scorsese's high style, they're the glue. Like, the movie is bloody and ambitious, yeah. and the production is really impressive. Like, it's, it's really good to look, look at. And it's easy, I think, to leave it feeling like, oh, that was... That was weighty and important. But if you take away the spectacle and you kind of just strip it down, I'm not sure that it coheres as well as it kind of feels like it does at points, because I do think that the highs are high. So Scorsese touches on a ton of ground here. You know, he says a lot of, about faith and family, immigration, obviously, xenophobia. That Those are like yeah. the two, you know, opposing sides. There's a lot of history. And he says a ton about America, you know. Daniel Day-Lewis drapes the American flag over him in that scene that you brought up. With and, the natives text over it. Like. Yeah, yeah. And it's politics. But as a whole, even though he's saying all that, like, I'm not sure what he's saying. That That's the thing I kept coming back to. Like, I understand these points keep popping up and I'm supposed to feel a certain way about them in the scene. Yeah. But then at the end, how do they all translate into like one thing? And I wasn't, I wasn't sure that they did. You brought up that final battle scene and i want to talk about that one because i think that in a way it's kind of amazing like i thought about this for my best moment yeah. but i kind of want to talk about it here instead so i did a little switcheroo so we, we see class and race race riots spreading through new york because of the draft yeah and it's all narrated by a telegram operator in a montage as we build up to this final showdown yeah big momentum two gangs standing on opposite sides of the road like it's about to go down and then right before they can fight, cannonballs blow through buildings, put ash over everyone, disrupts the whole scene. 
And that ash covers up all of their like red and blue markers, you know, that kind of designate them to certain tribes. And now yeah. like everybody's just kind of covered in gray, basically. That explosion or those explosions reframe our perspective, I think. You know, they make the conflict bigger than just like local five-point streets. Now we're talking about like the country and how these gangs fit in America, basically, rather yeah. than just the streets in a town. And I think all that's great. Like that's the spectacle that I was talking about. But then Leo DiCaprio, the man, the myth, the with legend. The, with, the, with his jack scowl all up throughout the movie, the one eye almost like halfway closed. <laughs> yeah. That's how he expresses most of his emotions in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he's got his hair back. He's ready to fight. He kills Bill during, th- during that ashy moment. And we're supposed to see him as like a symbol of the new world, taking over the old world, right? Yeah. He represents New York. His name is Amsterdam. You know, New York was New Amsterdam. Yep. And this is, you know, New York obviously represents like the melting pot. That's that's like the symbol. And then there's Bill who says at one point that he'd kill every Irishman coming off the boats at Ellis Island <laughs> before they had a chance to touch their 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 foot on American soil if he could. So, okay, new world killing old world. But this was a revenge story for like, over two hours yeah. of the three hours, you know, so there's a disconnect there between like what that kill is supposed to mean and like it falls flat. It falls flat because Bill in that moment is crying. He's sentimental. Everybody's gone. All the soldiers are gray. So think of everybody now as just one team yeah. because it doesn't matter. The union's going to take out everybody. It doesn't matter. They're not looking red or blue. They're just all these people got to go. Yep. And it just it it's weird because him crying, it's mirroring the whole relationship with him and Priest. It's like this reflection is, you know, earlier uh, Amsterdam gets to live. It's almost the same thing. It's like he gets to live. So later on, they can have their fight. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't feel impactful. And then him and Jenny are just kind of walking and like everyone's getting arrested. I'm like, why are they not hitting him? Like, why? Why is he getting to like walk the streets while these Union soldiers are just going you know, knocking everyone, they're like, oh, that's Amsterdam. Yeah, I think it... He's a protagonist. I think, yeah, <laughs> leave him alone. Yeah. I think it doesn't have that punch because there's a disconnect there between, you know, the emotional thread that we followed. It was like, you killed my dad, so I'm going to kill you. That was basically the story. And then all of a sudden, like, after he sort of rises up against Bill, only because he sort of got found out for yeah, being, John, for John, being who Johnny he was. ratted him out. Yeah, then all of a sudden, like... The story becomes about immigration again. Leo says something like, you know, there's enough Irishmen coming off the boats every day that we don't have a gang. We have an army. Yeah. And the motivation like completely shifts in that moment in a way that I didn't really buy. I would also say he felt more threatening with Bill the Butcher than he did independent of him. He seemed more ruthless. He seemed more capable of fighting. Mm -hmm. And then him independent, he slicked the hair back. He tied it up. It just he didn't feel as a threat. I can see that. I think that there are a lot of those disconnects throughout the movie, though. And religion is is a big, big one because, you know, you start at the very first scene with Liam Neeson with the priest collar. You know, this yeah. is a guy fighting as a man of faith. But when Leo grows up, he rejects religion. He throws his Bible in the river. But then later when he rises up against Bill, he's using the church as his headquarters. Yeah. And I didn't know if it was ever like if it was ever clear that we were supposed to buy into this transformation that now he's following in his father's footsteps and he too is a man of faith or if he's using the church as a way to gain more power. It's never clear. And the only indication you have of something is when Bill the Butcher says the only difference between me and your dad was faith. Mm -hmm. So everything is the same. 
they don't really talk about that after, like you said, there's no ever another connection of that. But yeah. that's basically the point is maybe he's thinking like, okay, well, I guess I'm faith and, and he has a different belief system. But again, it was overshadowed by all of a sudden the pillaging again of all the Irish people coming off the boat, immediately going to war. It was these gruesome scenes of just people dead. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, here we go. And and that's a great moment too, where they come off of the boats, they sign their papers, yeah. they, and you know, sign this to become a citizen, sign this to join the military, go fight for your country. Like that's a great moment, and the movie is filled with great moments. Another one that is murky, but I think I don't know, it's powerful but flawed. Um, he plays up this religious contradiction thing again. So the scene where DiCaprio kills John C. Riley, they fall down and they like knock over this scaffolding that's covered with a sheet. And when that thing comes down, it reveals this giant crucifix on the wall as Leo is choking him out. So it's like, okay, powerful image, but but what's the hypocrisy here that yeah. we're that we're pointing out? Is it that these characters go to church and call themselves faithful, but then don't live at all by the ideals, or that it's that Leo is abusing the church to build this army? Which again is, I think, indirectly what happened here, and it's why it makes the death at the end not as impactful because we don't know what Leo's mindset is or what what drives him. Bill the Butcher made it clear what drove him, but we never know what Leo's determination is. Yeah. Is it revenge? Because it didn't really feel like it towards the end. Yeah, I think that that that's kind of the the major flaw of the movie is that his motivation is clearly simple revenge for more than half. And then in the last third, it's clearly bigger ideals about immigration yeah. and about taking back the city and about Bill being an oppressor. And it's like, I don't know about that. You can't just you can't shoehorn those things in at the very yeah. end. Another disconnect that I have to just bring up just for one sentence is his relationship with Cameron Diaz is so weird. It's so weird. It's like weirdly abusive for most of it. Well, and, if you want to save it, that's, that's going to be for the next segment. That was actually my question to you <laughs> oh, okay. because it's the same train of thought here. Okay, cool. Let's, well, let's get into questions. Give me, give me your Cameron Diaz. So going on that even more, do you think Cameron Diaz's character as uh, Jenny Everdeen was even needed in the movie? Do you think she added anything in the movie? Because they, they had this subtle connection between, you know, her and Bill, mm -hmm. and then the relationship with Amsterdam. But at times, she just seemed kind of there. Like, you know, he went and saw, you know, her character. She's in the rich house, and she's stealing, and she's doing all these things. And then, you know, towards the end, when everything's going down in the streets, all of a sudden, she seems weak, and she's getting knocked over and barely, like, surviving and scrambling to get a gun. Mm -hmm. So it's weird. It's like, is she is she smart and strong or is she now weak and frail? Because I don't know what, what's going on there. And that could be another kind of old world new world thing like she was somebody that worked that like made sense the one within, person within in, the gang the, in the movie system. that worked no 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 i mean like <laughs> I, I mean through her crimes like she carved out a place in that yeah. world that that worked for her like she was able to be a pickpocket safely but then when the new world comes in and all of a sudden like the gang thing doesn't really work the same way because now we're talking about the union and you know, like you have federal laws, like yeah. it's not like a lawless, you know, wild west, but in the north, um, she doesn't fit there anymore. Like she doesn't have a place that fits. And now all of a sudden she's weak. That's a good point. But I think that you're on to something here. I think that 
Scorsese sometimes does have an issue with women in movies. The movie obviously needed a strong woman character, but I don't think it's her. And I don't necessarily know who it could have been because of the times. Yeah. But I felt like maybe there could have been a matriarchy like storyline there. Like even in the beginning, they determined, you know, this is his dad. This is the relationship that means everything to him. Yeah. But there could have been some woman figure besides Hellcat Maggie, like as an additional character just to add something. Yeah. And the movie is about father, fathers and sons in one way. So it, it makes sense to kind of keep it, keep the focus on the masculine side. But if you're if you're trying to pull in the feminine, he's yeah, he's I, actively trying to have a strong woman character, but yeah. he fails at it. And I just feel like you could have done more with it again. A movie that's almost three hours long feels rushed in a lot of the character development. So I didn't set up our questions segment, and I wrote a great line that I have to say. So in our questions segment, Joey, this is when we ask each other one question designed to place a top hat of truth upon DDL's greasy head of ignorance. That's pretty good. <laughs> I don't that's know. Good. I guess Brian likes to say, you know, in this question, we this question is designed to do the whatever of truth to the whatever of ignorance. So I have to try to live up to, to you have fantastic. to try to fill those shoes. You know, it's, it's a tough job. Brian smiling ear to ear right now. <laughs> so the production of gangs in New York was very, very dramatic. It mm -hmm. lasted three years, went way over budget. The original budget was $85 million. The final was $103 million. Wow. And Leo and Marty, good old Leo and Marty pulled together $7 million of their own money to defray some of that extra cost. It also was released a full year after it was originally supposed to. And the length, like we're talking about here, was a major debate. Harvey Weinstein, who we all know and love, <laughs> led Miramax at the time. He wanted this shorter and more commercial. Scorsese's original cut was three hours and 40 minutes. That's 50 minutes longer wow. than the current final version of the film. So my question to you is, was the movie still too long at its final two hours and 50 minute runtime, or would you want to see a director's cut? That is a fantastic question. Thanks. Because, because <laughs> I, I would say the two trains of thought is, do I feel like it needs more time to flesh these characters out? Or do I feel like let's just remove all of this extra stuff and just get a really, you know, cut story of my pops died. I'm going to get revenge. Here yeah. I am. That's the end. I, yeah. And honestly, I think the movie just would have done better shorter. I think you could have just made the case for the movie as a shorter movie that it didn't need to describe a lot of these characters a little bit more. Like they just, they appear in these segments, but over the span of, you know, it's current runtime, it's, you do get flashes of these extra characters who are never fleshed out. Mm -hmm. I don't even think if he was given, we were given the director's cut, I don't think that's a thought process was to flesh these out. I don't think there's like a John C. Riley B-roll that's just sitting out there and it's just him. Although like I would love it if there were. I love John C. Riley. Him hanging up his hat and he's like, honey, I got you some jewelry. Like, I don't think those things exist. I think it's, I think more of it would have just been more of the Jenny Amsterdam relationship. I think honestly, there was so much of that. I think we would have saw more of that. They set that up in the movie just to build additional tension onto his relationship with Bill, right? Because she was with Bill at one point. She had an abortion because of a relationship that she had with him. And now she's with Leo. But they he throws it immediately away. He's like, you know, do whatever is your pleasure. Like, yeah, yeah. Whatever the direct line was. And you're like, oh, OK, I guess everything's good. But the second he finds out it's the son of a man who apparently he had admiration for. He's like, I got to throw knives at this guy. <laughs> so Scorsese denies that he had to cut the movie. 
but I don't think I believe this. I, I, believe I read it. somewhere that he just doesn't believe in re-releasing his movies, that the final version is the final version. I can appreciate that. So the that. final version is the, quote, director's cut, because that's the one that I agreed on. But apparently his original was 50 minutes longer. So take what you will out of that. I take that he would have liked to see this movie be a little bit longer. Yeah. And I think that I would, too, because I loved this movie the first time I saw it years ago. And I do still admire it. But because of those disconnects that I talked about before, like, I don't think that it ever sort of achieves that masterpiece status that it's clearly going for. And I wonder if those dots would have been better connected if the movie was longer or maybe even better if it was just a miniseries, if it was like an HBO miniseries, an extra hour long and you release it in four episodes or something like that. And I think you could have had episodes to certain characters. So you could add an episode to kind of flesh out and then get back to it, because obviously this movie is Bill the Butcher. It's Daniel Day Lewis. It's him acting circles around everyone else. And and the only reason I say that is he's so good, he doesn't necessarily need everyone to come up to him. But there are times you just feel like his energy in the scene yeah. and you're just like, you know, Leo forgets his Irish accent and you're just like, hmm, like Daniel's all in on like his, you know, New York accent of the times yeah. and stuff like and that. And it's like, it's a little bit cartoony too. And I've kind of gone back and forth with, really? his, with his performance because it's, he goes so big that I don't think that he leaves a ton of room for emotional ambiguity. Like, like, but at the same time, this is not an ambiguous, an emotionally ambiguous character. Like, this is a character who knows who he is, who knows what he wants, and he is not going to waver. So I've kind of gone back and forth between kind of feeling like he's doing shtick and I want yeah. more subtlety, but that's not what the character is. It's not how he's written and that's not how he chose to play him. And he's such a big presence that I feel like that's enough. Like, I don't know if I should be questioning this performance if if I'm willing to call it iconic. Like it's, I, I he's think, doing it right. I think that's the thing. I don't think if he scaled it down, the movie's better. I think he had to have foot on the pedal for this movie to be memorable. I can see that. And I think that's that has to be it. He Maybe they had a script read and he's sitting at the table and he like scratches his head. He's like, well, I'm going all the way in the deep end on this one <laughs> because no one has ever heard someone who's Irish speak. <laughs> So I read about the decades that Scorsese spent thinking about this project. Apparently, he had the idea for it before he was even famous. He bought the book rights in 1979, wow. but he wanted to build these like gigantic sets and be as historically accurate as possible. So he couldn't get the budget to do that until Miramax backed it in 1999. Then, supposedly, he wasn't happy with the ending and there were reshoots. So like, this is a passion project. Yeah. And... I think that it's a little overstuffed because of that. And maybe if it was longer, I wouldn't feel that way. Like maybe I would be able to, maybe those problems would be solved. Maybe the Cameron Diaz's character would, would ha I don't know, be more weighty, would have more significance. I, I think that's the issue with having a project over multiple decades. You think of the Irishman, it's, it's the same thing. He wanted to do it so long ago. By the time he got it, it feels you know, it, feels, I, it feels almost perfect. I agree. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you um, one other question. I'm, I'm just going to squeeze this in here. So to prep for this role, good old DDL. I'm yeah. just going to be calling him good old DDL, <laughs> good for, old DDL. For, for, forevermore. He employed two circus performers to travel to his home in Ireland. He's from Ireland to teach him yes, how did. to throw knives. He also worked in a butcher shop for several weeks to learn how to cut carcasses. Kidney, kidney, liver. <laughs> yeah, that's a kill. That's a kill. But his prep, <laughs> that was kind of like a De Niro. That was, no, that was pretty good. <laughs> but he, his prep didn't stop there. He's famously this hardcore method actor. 
And he talked with his film accent the entire production of the movie, whether or not he was on set or not. And mm-hmm. he based this voice that he does off of the poet Walt Whitman and by reading plays from during that time where the dialogue was spelled out phonetically. So he's speaking in this voice, Scorsese and De Niro, I mean, and DiCaprio. They're hungry one day for lunch. They say, come on, Day-Lewis, come out with us for lunch. And he does. And at this restaurant, he's acting as Bill the Butcher in like full 1800 swagger, ordering his meal. And apparently after the first time that the waitress came, she was afraid to go back to the table because of how you know big and scary a presence he is. Well, did he have the contact lens in too with the one I bad th- eye? I, I think That's so. That's scary because he's sitting there and he looks greasy. He really does. So method acting, yes or no? <laughs> You know, I I would say that I used to think method acting was always a little bit too much. I felt like, you know, just act like that's what you do. Just get on the set and act. Yeah. And I think I think method acting gets a bad rep from bad method actors, like method Mm. actors who don't deliver on like uh, all of the extra that they do. I think of um, Suicide Squad. Jared Leto. Yeah. Jared Leto. I don't. Again, we didn't see all the footage of the Joker, but he was obviously method acting during that. And if the character didn't really feel like it needed that and, kind of character to it. And there were stories of him doing like milling kind, eyeballs and frogs and yeah, dead like stuff. doing sort of like abusive pranks Correct. to his castmates um, as a way to like terrorize them because he was the crazy Joker. That seems a little crazy. It's a little bit over the top to go that far, I think. I think so, too. But with Daniel Day-Lewis, just look at his work. Like, it's really hard to argue that him completely getting into these characters, uh, My Left Foot, Mm -hmm. um, Lincoln. Like, there's just so many movies that it's like, if he needed all of that to get there... There's got to be some something that works in that. Like, that's just his his thing. And I think me personally, not that I'm an actor in any way, but I know that when as a kid, when I'm imagining things, I'm in that character like the whole time, like you're practicing, you're just trying to get in that character the whole time. And then when you see your friends, you you it's commitment. So, I mean, I guess you can't you can't hold that against him. But how are you feeling about it? I don't know. I I always kind of think it's silly. Do you? Yeah, it's like. Like you said, it's a job, like show up to your job and go to work. You know, that's, that's what acting is. It's not, it's not actually becoming someone else in your, in in your full-time life. But at the same time, I understand, you know, the idea of like a craft as a higher purpose. And if you want to commit yourself to that and that's what you do, and if you can turn in an iconic performance, you know, the movie's better off for it. And, and maybe he's the singular light of that. Maybe he is the <laughs> one person who's the method actor and you're like, he can do it. But everyone else is really bad at it. Maybe. What might have been? This is when we talk about actors who were considered for roles in the movie. So I'm going to assume at the top mm-hmm. that you are going to say no to all of these because they are all Bill the Butcher related. Oh. But we, I know, anybody else but Daniel Day-Lewis is kind of hard to imagine. But... This movie, you know, it was decades in production in in one way or another. So there are a lot of people that kind of came in and out of this. But the first one is maybe the craziest. Let me let me just stop. Is it Joe Pesci? (laughs) No, but I'm on record saying that Joe Pesci should play every part in every movie. (laughs) He should be in the movie just playing Joe Pesci. (laughs) Let me tell you something. Let me tell you. (laughs) I love Joe Pesci so much. So when the film was originally conceived in 1978. Oh, wow. Scorsese planned to cast Dan Aykroyd as Amsterdam Valen, DiCaprio's part. Is, it, is this some kind of Blues Brothers thing? And John Belushi as Bill the Butcher. I don't know about that. Dan Aykroyd and Jim... John Belushi, I'm sorry. Did I say Jim Belushi? And John Belushi. 
Jim Jim appreciated it. Yeah, he's so he probably would he would take it. Yeah, he would have took it. I mean, talk about a different movie. Well, I will say to this, and maybe it was his original thought process. Probably not. I think this movie with different actors is a comedy. There mm. are moments in this movie that are just outright silly. When the firefighters, they're all like grouping yeah, up. That feels true. like slapstick. There's lettuce flying in the air. They're all like, hope, 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 like throwing yeah. axes. The they're movie's... arguing over who's going to put out the fire. Like, yeah. Yeah. You're, that's you, a good point. You could think of Lee, uh, Leslie Nielsen like standing there is like, everybody calm down. We're going to put the fire out. And, you know, your nickname is Don't Call Me Chisler. Joey, Every... Don't Call Me Chisler Santos. My whole life. And the scene where the, I don't remember his name calls DiCaprio a chiseler and a fiddling bends. Mm. They do the the old timey fights where, you know, they have one fist way out in front of the all other. All uppercuts. And, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. And that's another scene that could be kind of comedy. That's what I'm saying. Everyone who's drunk seems over the top. The cat, when you talk about Hellcat, like yeah, these yeah. things seem openly comical. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Yeah. Kind of, kind of put player. the Blues Brothers in there. They got the car like halfway <laughs> through. They're driving the car. They crash it into the boat. They're like, all the Irish get on, get in the car. And they all drive off and they save the day. They're on a mission from God. So the project fell apart, obviously, when Belushi died. And a cast reshuffle later had Mel Gibson as Amsterdam and Willem Dafoe as the butcher. Willem Dafoe, I think, would have given a different but entertaining performance. Yeah. He has like a, more of an evil one, I think. I think he would have felt more evil. And I don't know if it if that's what you want with that character, because I feel like, like I said, once you know the motivation of Bill the Butcher and Daniel Day Lewis's Bill the Butcher all of a sudden he's more rounded. Like he's not perfect. You hate him because of all the racism, but like you understand like Willem Dafoe would just feel evil. Like he's just got a, yeah. a face that would feel intense and maybe it would be a more intense. And I feel like he would almost have to be quieter. Like Willem, William Dafoe has that silent intensity to him. Yeah. Yeah. I think he'd be interested in it. I almost would want to see a cut of the movie with him in yeah. it just because I, I like Willem Dafoe so much and just to see how much different he would play. Cause I feel like, his interpretation would be 180 degrees. But to Mel Gibson, no. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Um, of course, De Niro was in talks to play the butcher at one point. I, I, I don't think I don't think it would work. <laughs> Robert De Niro is an all-time great actor who gets put in roles he shouldn't be in sometimes, and he feels just like drowning. Like it just doesn't feel like his. He would play it like a mob boss, I think. Yeah. Which. Uh, I think this has to it has to be different than that. It's not a mob boss because, you know, Butcher doesn't really have underlings as as much of like a mob boss. There's not like yeah, that hierarchy. It's, it's more of a network. It's, he's more like the mayor. Yeah. In a it, way. It's kind of like people come to him and he's like, go do this. And yeah. then that's, they go they go and do it. And then he does his thing. But he's the presence like in the mob. You don't really see the mob boss getting out there and like getting his hands dirty. Like he can't wait to fight. Yeah, that's true. Um, finally, when the movie was being made, it finally begun casting. So this one was legit. All the other ones were sort of, you know, the, speculative. The movie was back and forth. Yes. I think that that some of the other ones actually were signed on for a period, but then it fell through. At this point, the movie is being made by Miramax. Okay. Scorsese says he first offers the part of Bill the Butcher to none other than Tom Hanks. Ooh. Tom Hanks. I would love to see Tom Hanks do a turn where he's like Mr. Good Guy. He's like America's dad. I think that's a thought process. And then he's Bill the Butcher. Like it would be, I don't know if you, it's I don't tough. know how believable it would be but i think it would be really interesting has he ever had a true character in road of, to perdition he was a gangster and he, but even he was then, a hitman yeah but he had a heart of gold yeah <laughs> he, he was traveling with his son right like yeah yeah, yeah. 
I mean, in that. Also 2002. That movie was released the same year as Gangs of New York. And that's why Tom Hanks turned this down. He said he loved the script, but he had contractual obligations to Road to Perdition. Uh, real quick, Sarah Michelle Gellar was originally cast in Cameron Diaz's role. She was but, good in Buffy. Yeah, she backed out because of scheduling complications with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Ah. Next, a few bits of trivia. So, Gangs of New York. Just to clarify, there weren't anyone else for Leo. Like, it was Leo. Like, he saw him and he was like, let's... I don't know because I didn't want to make the list too long. So, I just mm. focused on... Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> Yeah, JTT was number one. I think after Leo made Romeo plus Juliet and Titanic, he was probably a little bit higher on Scorsese's list yeah. than JTT, who was in Home Improvement 10 years before. But he could add DDL and JTT. Oh, that'd be great. What go. a combo. So made for $100 million. This is not Scorsese's most expensive film. There's one more expensive. Can you guess which one? From I'm going to give you multiple choice here. Goodfellas. The Aviator. The Departed. The Irishman. The Irishman. The Irishman's correct. It's the de-aging. I'm pretty sure that most of that budget was just the de-aging. Yeah. The Irishman was made for $159 million. Gangs of New York wow. is the second most expensive at $100 million, but it still did make $194 million. Okay. To simulate Bill the Butcher's fake eye that you mentioned before, Daniel Day-Lewis actually had his own eyeball covered with prosthetic glass. So the scene where he tapped his eye with the knife is actually real, and he practiced that so he, that he could do wow. it without blinking. <laughs> Wow. And honestly, that isn't something you show up on set and you can just I I would be even nervous for a gun to fire. Like I would need someone to literally shoot it against the wall like a bunch of times, like a comedic amount of times to know there's not a bullet just rattling in there. Yeah. But to put a knife to your eye and click it. I know. And I, I was watching that scene kind of trying to figure out because it really does. I mean, it looks real because I guess it is real. Yeah. But so cool. And that was ad libbed. As was when he said, whoopsie daisy, <laughs> during the <laughs> knife scene. <laughs> Which is one of the best lines in the whole movie. And it doesn't seem that out of character for him to no, say it. he's on stage. He's being a bigger version of his already big Correct. self. It's all entertainment. Yeah, whoopsie daisy. So because the release of Gangs of New York was delayed to, to December 2002, uh, DiCaprio had two films that year, and they opened within just one week of each other. This and Spielberg, catch me if you can. Wow. Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese in the same year. Like, huge year for Leo. Leo was hot. Good for him. And last, Daniel Day-Lewis hates Abraham Lincoln in this movie, like you mentioned. He throws a knife at his picture, and then he goes on to play Lincoln in 2012, also for Spielberg. But, coincidentally, he was not originally cast to play Lincoln. He replaced another actor. That man? Liam Neeson. Wow. What are the chances? Wow. And then he kills Liam Neeson in this movie. <laughs> he travels back in time, gets cast in this movie, kills Liam Neeson in the movie. And Liam Neeson's career never, it, 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 it never mean, took from, off the from same here way. on, all he has is Taken. He could have been, yeah, that was it. Taken two, three, four. <laughs> so many Taken. could have been Lincoln. Next, the big reveal. Will you keep this movie or kick it from your top five of 2002? I'm going to kick it. Uh, like I said earlier, like this is this to me doesn't even feel like one of Martin Scorsese's like best movies. And I think with certain directors, you got to weigh their work a little bit more. Like there's an expectation for some of these. See, that's a, that's an interesting more. point because I've thought about that too, and I don't know that it's fair to do that. Like if we're looking at say only ten movies are released in the year, mm. and we're looking at one, and we have to decide whether or not it's in the top five or it's in the six through ten. If it's good. It, the quality should kind of be its own uh, 
marker of whether or not it belongs Individual in that, in, projects in that, in that versus, top five. Yeah. But I, I see what you're saying, and I've thought the same thing. Like, well, if I don't like this as much as I saw it before, and I like The Irishman better, and I like Goodfellas better, and I like Taxi Driver better, like, do I need to include this well, in I the Scorsese that. pantheon? I say that because you can't take away your expectations for someone's work. So the expectation of you seeing something like City of God, which you have no expectations knowing what you're going to see in that movie, mm-hmm. versus seeing this movie where you've already liked someone's work overall, yeah. your expectation's so high. You're and, more likely to be deflated. Yeah. Would the movie have been better if it if it just wasn't his name attached to it and you saw it dry and you're like, you know what? That was a good movie. But mm-hmm. because of him, it's hard because you're like, this is going to be a good movie. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like you said, the highs are really high. Mm-hmm. It's sprawling. The parts... The parts that the movie is made out of are very impressive, but I'm not sure that those parts come together in a way that, in a way thematically anyway, that I found very exciting. And it surprises me because like I said, I loved this movie back in the day and I went into this 2002 miniseries like, this is a lock for my keeps. Like, I'm just going to pencil this in now as my top five, but I'm going to kick it. It's also being kicked. So two kicks here on the show for Gangs of New York. Kick it. Well, Joey, we've come to the to the end of the episode. It's quick. I, I know it was it was too quick. It was a good time though. It was very fun. Um, we'll do our 2002 series finale next, where we will rank the Academy's picks for Best Picture, and we will make our own top fives. But first, we want to hear from you. What was your favorite movie of 2002? Let us know, and we'll read your answers on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com, on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or by telling your smart speaker to play Best Picture This. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Best Picture This. And for 15 years of Golden Takes, head over to Letterboxd, where you'll find me, Mike Cavallari. Do you have anything to plug, Joey? I would say that that letterbox account almost is graduating high school. <laughs> uh, from, I'm not sure what that means. 18 years. Oh, okay. You had okay. It, you've had it for 15 years, three years away, and it's graduating. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, for me, uh, you can check out askflagler.com. It's a site uh, that I do uh, with a few local writers. Um, it's local news, but we honestly, we feature a lot of local musicians, artists, business owners who you just got to see. They're going to blow up. It's just interesting to see someone on the come up and be able to support them early on. So it's askflagler.com, A-S-K-F-L-A-G-L-E-R.com. Askflagler.com. And do you have a favorite movie that you would like to hear featured on this show? If you become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash bestpicturethis, you can curate a future bonus episode of BPT. We already have a few of those planned. The first, David Cronenberg's body horror film, The Fly from 1986. And the second, Zach Braff's Garden State from 2004 two very very different movies there joey have you seen either help me help me be human uh yeah i i have seen both of those movies i'm pretty sure the fly was playing on tbs nonstop when i was a teenager so i think i've watched it three or four times interesting about jeff goldblum when you really think about it i'm pretty sure you could take any line of dialogue he's ever done in any movie and swap it into another movie and it would still work (laughs) in the context of jeff goldblum he is he is very gold bloomy in in every one of his roles but he's so he's so perfect in Jurassic the fly. Park life finds a way just put that in the fly it it yeah. sort of makes sense it would completely play um and Joey you have graciously become a patron yourself I did and you want to announce the movie that you've chosen I forgot the bridge on the river Kwai. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that is the How movie could I forget that, that you it? have yeah. chosen. So we have the fly, we have garden state and we have the bridge on the river Kwai, all three movies that could not be any more different from each other all coming up soon. Thanks to our patrons. That's really cool. 
Uh, they'll be up in our episode log, and you could find all the rest of our episodes there as well from the past 30 plus. Thanks to WNZF and Mark Gilliland for producing. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you else you get your podcasts. And do you have any final parting words that you'd like to say to the audience, Joey? Any last witticisms? Any final nuggets of wisdom? Uh, that's tough. Uh, I'm going to go. <laughs> you don't have to. Glad to be here. Th- that's, you know what? Nailed it right on the head. Thanks for listening to Best Picture This. Until next time, please remember, a native is a man who is willing to give his life for Best Picture This. Check it out.